Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We are one week away from uh, the municipal election uh, and a very important municipal election. It's uh, um, it's going to be an election of change, certainly, because there are some new faces, simply because uh, some of the incumbents are not running anymore. But quite aside from that, uh, there's a discussion about issues, and you know what the big one is, but there's one that is bubbling under uh, and, and deserves more con- conversation than it's getting right now. And that, of course, is the idea of uh, of area rating. And it does, of course, in a big way tie into transit. And I don't want to get into the LRT issue today. That's being discussed, and we'll get into that, I'm sure, later in the week. But what about the rest of the transit? What about how we pay for it? It's been a very contentious issue from day one, right from the first day of amalgamation. It hasn't been settled yet, and there there is some speculation that it may be on the docket when the uh, new council finally sits down and starts to look after the business of the city. Will it be a divisive issue again? Let's uh, get into the discussion right now. Larry Deany is a former mayor, actually former Stony Creek councillor before he was a Hamilton councillor, and of course Hamilton mayor is now a lobbyist at the city of Hamilton. He joins us to talk about this. Larry, good morning. How are you today? I'm well, Bill. Good morning. You remember the discussions we had way back when, that first amalgamation uh, city council, and, and we talked about how we were going to try to create a sense of fairness, and, and maybe you could walk us through exactly how we got to the point of, of adopting this area rating policy. Sure, and uh, it, it's a very important policy, but um, it, the moment you start talking about almost people's eyes glaze over because they just don't understand it. But to put it in simple terms, uh, and you got to go back to the forced amalgamation when the Harris government sort of said to the to the suburbs uh, and to Hamilton, we're going to join all of you. Uh, you're already a regional um, uh, municipality. We're just going to make you a one city. Uh, and there was great reaction against that by the suburbs, of course. Um, some of it still lingers today. Uh, but one of the ways that the government of the day tried to soften things was by saying, look, uh, we realize that there are levels of service differences in uh, in uh, um, the uh, the regional municipality now, so that uh, the services in the inner city and in the former city of Hamilton may not be the same as in the suburbs. And so we're going to institute this one plan. And this is what area rating is all about. If you don't get a service, you don't pay for a service. And nothing illustrates that better than HSR. There are other examples in recreation, and they've dealt with some of those. But uh, nothing nothing um, uh, exemplifies that, that policy better than public transit or, in the city of Hamilton, HSR. And, and that was a new and a novel idea at the time because, I mean, previously, whether you lived in Flamborough or downtown Hamilton, you paid for policing, you paid for fire, you paid for, tra- et cetera. And, then, and this was uh, obviously to try to assuage some of the concerns that, uh, that some of the other rural residents had. That's right. And, and of course, um, even though, and policing is a great example, right? We are a regional uh, system. We all paid for the police and the police didn't come to every part of the municipality um, um, as often as some others because they respond to need. They respond to emergencies. They respond to calls. Uh, but occasionally you'd see a policeman, you know, in the uh, in what some people unkindly called the hinterlands in those days. And so, that, and that's and that's the issue, Bill. That that with HSR, you know, if you if you take uh, Rockton, for example. Um, it doesn't have HSR, uh, I don't think, and, and it doesn't want HSR um, as well. Um, and so consequently, uh, forcing them to pay for a system they neither want 
or need uh, would be seen as not fair to them. And therefore, this, uh, this system seems at least to provide some fairness in terms of if you don't have a service, you don't pay for the service. But here's the dilemma that the council finds itself in. You know, everybody sort of agrees that public transit is important. I mean, we're having that whole HSR, uh, that whole LRT debate, which is about public transit and other things as well. Uh, everybody agrees that it's important, but uh, who pays for it is the question that often comes up. And the advocates of uh, those who want to do away with area raising um, say that, look, unless you put more money in the system, you can never improve it sufficiently to get service to areas that don't have it. I may appreciate it, but may appreciate it once they do get it. And so the only way they see as being able to provide a fair system that's updated, that's well-financed, that spreads across the whole municipality uh, in some way, just like policing, is to put more money into the pot. Therefore, everybody's got to pay. What about those elements, though? And you just touched on a few of them, because and there are other areas that say, we don't want it. I don't want to pay for it, and I don't even want it. Now, there's always going to be a, a, a minority of people like that, but do, do they have a voice in this debate? Well, and they should, right? And they have a voice through their local counselor. So, you know, Rockton's a perfect example, because now they've gotten rid of a, uh, a discrete counselor, a unique counselor, a counselor that was elected by the citizens in uh, in the Flamborough area that represent that 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 uh, community as well, and and they they've sort of rolled it in with Dundas and uh, and uh, some water some uh, water down and also some Ancaster uh, representation, which which is not a bad deal except that there isn't that one counselor's voice that responds directly to his citizens. Uh, so it's up to the rest of council uh, and the mayor specifically to be the honest broker and to walk us through carefully, both by explaining what's happening as well as not overtaxing people so that there's a tax revolt, and we've seen some examples of that. But it is a dilemma because um, however you slice this, somebody's not going to be pleased. And, of course, I live in the suburbs. Now, I live in the urban part of Stony Creek, uh, where we do have HSR service. We've always had it uh, to some degree, and we pay for it. Uh, but it's not, in some areas of my community, as frequent as in other areas, and so we pay a little less. And so if they did away with area rating, I would be wholly affected uh, by whatever increase uh, would be spread across the municipality. And that's what rankles some folks who say, well, you know what? I really don't need that. In fact, some people don't like the LRT, and they're making that very same argument. They're saying, I'll never get on that train. They don't see it as a, as a city-building exercise, as a fairness exercise, as, a, as a, an infrastructure renewal exercise. It's all about me. And, you know, we tend to see life through our own personal lens, don't we? And especially mm -hmm. if it affects our wallets. Let me ask you, though, uh, as, as you recall, when that discussion was being had by that council back in 2001, 2000, uh, it was not unanimous. There were some people on that council that said, no, this is a dumb idea, and you're just going to make people want this, and you're never going to get rid of it. And there was even some talk, well, let's just put a sunset clause on that. Uh, but, and so we ended up with what we've got here as a result. But there are still voices on this council, Larry, that don't think this is a fair system and want to see it eliminated. Uh, and I'm getting the sense that that may be a growing number. And that, it looks to me as if we're getting into another city versus rural split on this council. 
Yeah, and that's the unfortunate part. And in fact, if you recall, Bill, when we first amalgamated, uh, and there was, um, you know, and the concern was that there would be this swoosh of uh, of dollars from the suburbs to the center, uh, which which never really did materialize. But there was a period of adjustment, and in fact, there was a three year phase into any increases, if you remember. Yeah. And and there were some others on council, and I think, and and I was not one of them, but I think they had some wisdom to what they said. It, you know, they used the analogy of uh, of uh, removing a Band-Aid from, from you know, a, a, a sore in, on your arm. You know, you rip it off, your it, it hurts for a few seconds uh, or a minute or so, and then it's gone. And three years, uh, you know, removing a Band-Aid over three years prolongs that pain over that time. And, in fact, those increases, um, as modest as they might have been, were felt, but they were felt over three years. So people were upset for three years, and once they were fully integrated, then they were forgotten about. And the same argument was made with HSR. Look, let's just get rid of area rating, bite the bullet, and uh, and life will go on. Uh, except those of us who were elected in the suburbs uh, wouldn't so much as bite the bullet, but we'd take a bullet, we thought, politically, uh, if, if that were to happen. And so we maintained that regime. And, and you know, there is a fairness to the regime because... Gosh, it just sounds awful to say if I get a service, but I don't pay for the service, I still have to pay for it if I don't get it. And, and, and that doesn't sit well with lots of people. On the other hand, and again, I go back to the policing or the firefighting um, uh, regime. Uh, you know, thank goodness I don't need to call the police uh, because uh, there isn't the need to do that because no incident has occurred. Or I don't need to call the fire department because the no incident has occurred. But I pay for it because someday I may have to avail myself of those services, in which case it's only fair to then pay for them because they're on standby. But there's another element to that. And, and, and you know, you can relate just to the provincial thing. I mean, whether or not you have kids, you still pay into the education system. And exactly. policing is a great idea, too. Uh, and and the, the the explanation for those usually is, look, at it's it's for the good of the community. You may not use it, but you want to live in an enhanced community, and that's what you do. Is transit at that point now where we make that argument? I, I, I know we talk a lot more about transit, and to their credit, the, the past city council invested a little bit more in transit than they usually have. But is it at that issue right now where we'll say, yes, it's a necessity for a community? You know, I, I think at the intellectual level it is. Um, I don't think there's anybody that would say that public transit is not needed or wanted uh, or desirable in a modern city. And enhanced public transit and good public transit, reliable tra- public transit, I think people at the intellectual level would say, yes, of course, we need all of those things. But then you get to the nitty gritty. You get to the, uh, I pay my taxes every year and I see the escalation there. Uh, and, and I don't like that. Like everybody wants a service, but nobody wants to pay the taxes. And unfortunately, the two are linked. And so council has to do a good job this next term of council of explaining where we are, having a fair debate, engaging people, uh, setting up some mechanisms to educate but also, and this is key and important, and, and again, I, I don't want to bring up the LRT debate again, but, but maybe, maybe um, you know, the, the, the whole BLAST network of which LRT is a component, uh, educating people into how is it going to, over time, improve my lot. And maybe I won't need the bus, but my grandchildren might, my, son, my children might. Uh, you know, uh, my, my, and I'm a case in point. My son, when he went to, I live in Star Creek, but my son, when he went to McMaster, had a car but didn't drive a car because it was convenient to get on the bus. 
and drive into Mac because it was rolled into their fees as well. So if we are educated into how over time enhancing a system would benefit all of us in a personal way, as well as, you know, the intellectual, we want to see the city be the best it can be way, I think that's the way to go. But there's a chicken and egg argument here, Larry, and that's the problem. Uh, the only way that we're going to elevate it to that level where we look at it as a necessity is to improve the service. In other words, make it more convenient and affordable for people, for more people. But that takes money, and where's the money going to come from? Well, and that and there's the rub, right? Uh, because uh, you know, in because you know, you know, the electric, you know, the citizens are going to say, "Look at, I I'll, maybe I'll pay a little bit more if I knew it was a better service." But the response to that is, "It's not going to get better until you give us some more money." And and that's the chicken and egg, uh, and, and there and therefore the the horns of the dilemma. Um, however, uh, you know, money is being invested in HSR. Uh, improvements are being made. I think sometimes the worst uh, offenders in terms of those who, who criticize the system incessantly are those who ride it the most. And I get there. I, I get that. I, you know, if your bus doesn't come in your, and you have a, to go to your job and you rely on that transportation, you're going to be pretty upset. But, but sometimes those advocates also don't see the benefits and don't see the improvements being made because they think they have to often and always criticize in order to get more and more improvements. And I think we need to have a balance there uh, where, um, you know, the fare box has to pay its fair share. Uh, the, the local government and local taxes have to contribute, as well as other levels of government as well have to contribute. And certainly the federal government seems to be doing it. The provincial government was doing it. I don't know whether public transit is is um, uh, a, a priority with this current government remains to be seen. Uh, but, you know, the partnership uh, aspect will improve the system more than the uh, wailing about it uh, might. We've got about a minute left here, but this is this is going to cross the, the lines here of so many other issues. It, like, yeah, you got into the LRT thing, and you can't have a discussion about transit without that. But even the ward boundary debate that council kept kicking down the, the road for years and years, the, the, you know, the argument from the, a lot of the rural councillors always was, look at if you give the inner city an extra ward, they're going to gang up on us. And, and, yeah. I, and now that concern, I've talked to some of the people running, they're very concerned about that now, that because of this ward distribution, redistribution, that this issue is going to come up again because they think if we got the votes right now. Well, except, except I, I agree with you. Um, I, I hope it doesn't come to that, but that no. seems to be one of the fears. And, and, Bill, you were perhaps one of the best examples, not the only example, when you were on council of being fair-minded about whatever policy we're looking at rather than looking at the parochial end of it only. But but I, I've got to tell you, that was the fear. And those who were lobbying hardest for um, a one more seat for the uh, old city of Hamilton um, wanted it to be in the downtown area. And, of course, the population is all uh, south. It's all up on, yeah. on the mountain. And that's where the, the new seat went. And frankly, I've seen votes um, um, uh, align more uh, with the suburbs because, you know, if you take the new Ward 14 or the uh, Ward uh, uh, 8 um, uh, component, uh, has a lot of constituencies that have more in common with the Ancaster uh, Glanbrook area than, than the lower city. And sometimes the vote spl splits that way. So I hope that, that it doesn't become a parochial us against them. We are a united city, and we need somebody at the helm who will bring all of the sides together, whoever that might be. Uh, and all of the councillors have to look after their bailiwicks, no question about that. 
but they have to have a bigger picture or a, an eye towards the bigger picture. Uh, and that's the corporate interest, the city interest. Exactly. In well, the there's a storm cloud down the road there. We'll just see just how it well, quickly it develops. Larry, thanks as always. Appreciate the time today. Thank you. Have a good day. You too. Former Hamilton Mayor Larry Deany. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Municipal Election Day, uh, well, one week away. Uh, next Monday is uh, voting day. And uh, as you've been hearing, of course, uh, when the polls close, I uh, keep it right here on CHML for up to the second results and, uh, of course, interviews with uh, the winners and uh, some of the non-winners, too, I'm sure, as we go through. Looking forward to that. Uh, but at, now that we're just a few days away from this, I'm, I'm assuming that by now a lot of us have started to peruse some of the campaign literature. I know you tend to ignore that because, uh, you know, it gets dropped off. And it's just, yeah, I haven't got time to read that right now. But you got to make a decision about, you know, who you're going to support here. And, and you'll notice as you start reading through this, uh, an awful lot of campaign promises, especially from, uh, from some of the challengers uh, for these jobs, uh, because they want to break the mold. They want to do something different. And you, you hear all sorts of things like uh, term limits for counselors. There's a common one that you see an awful lot of the time. Uh, reducing salaries, uh, you know, all these sorts of things. Uh, some even talking about redrawing the ward boundaries. I don't think we want to go there again, but it's out there in somebody's literature. On and on it goes. But, you know, that's all the stuff you hear at election time. But when, you know, the rubber hits the road and the new council is elected, uh, very few of those things even get discussed, let alone enacted. Uh, and there's probably some pretty good reasons for that. John Best, who's going to be with us on election night, uh, joins us right now, uh, president, of course, and publisher of the Bay Observer, uh, to talk about the process and uh, the system, quote unquote. How are you doing this morning, John? Doing great, Bill. Thanks. Uh, getting jacked up for this? I mean, uh, we're. we're political animals, obviously, and uh, we're getting down to the short strokes now. Really are. Um, uh, you know, I don't know exactly when people, how many people have still not made up their minds, but I, I still think there's there's um, some movement uh, possible in this final week, and we'll have to see how the candidates uh, uh, approach. Uh, you know, this is really all out now for everybody, whether you're running for council or mayor. So, um, yeah, this will be an exciting week for sure, Bill. But uh, even, especially, I think, for the the, con- uh, you know, the contenders are one thing. Those you know, that are, are looking to unseat, a con- uh, you know, or maybe to grab a vacancy. The, the only way you can really se- separate yourself apart from all the others is, is to really be bold, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, you, you need to somehow, I, I can tell you, <laughs> partly from personal experience, uh, going way back, that uh, offering a positive alternative to whoever's there is probably not enough. It probably just doesn't work. It's great to present your credentials. And, you know, and I, I just spent some time uh, over the weekend going through uh, some of the, the candidates uh, for the various uh, positions. And, you know, a lot of these people are really uh, very well qualified for yeah. the job. If, if they won, they'd, they'd absolutely uh, look like they'd have the right kind of background. There's a number of small business people that... Uh, are, have offered themselves people with uh, community organization backgrounds, um, but uh, you know to to separate yourself from particularly if you're running against an incumbent, um, it, it's very very difficult uh, without putting some kind of a shock factor into your into your narrative. But when you do that, and I just mentioned some of the examples because I did the same thing you did, trying to go through some literature here. Uh, and not just in my area, but I mean right across the city to try and get some sort of an idea as to who may be on this next council. 
Uh, when, when they float ideas like electoral reform and, and, or redrawing boundaries or term limits or things of this nature, uh, that makes for great literature during campaigns, but it never seems to get onto the docket once the, the new council is elected. No, and and it never will. Uh, you know, uh, as you as you stated in your comment, I mean, what what counselor, no matter you know, no matter how how much you might believe in, uh, you know, turnover and and term limits, you're 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 simply not going to get that through any council anywhere. Uh, the only way that would happen would be if the provincial government intervened, as they did in Toronto, where they just slashed the number of wards. But you're, you're never going to get a council to voluntarily say, hey, let's, uh, let's put ourselves out of business and uh, let's cut our salaries. That's just not on. And uh, I think, generally speaking, the, the voting public don't place too much stock in those kind of promises. There's a lot of similarity, I must say, uh, when, when you go through, like there's all these 80-odd uh, candidates for council. Uh, so many uh, themes are recurring, Bill. Um, affordable housing, I, I don't think there's hardly a candidate that hasn't mentioned affordable housing. And that's probably one of the toughest issues to solve of, of any issue we face right now. The You know, the not only the condition of our existing affordable housing, but just the... the size of the waiting list and how would we ever uh, ever come anywhere close to meeting the demand well and made that may well be because it's been front of mind for an awful lot of the councillors this past term of council and, and council made a big commitment financial commitment to that uh, it's uh, it's a drop in the bucket according to what needs to be uh, you know done here but I mean that that's why they're looking for partners but I, I think the dynamic has changed over the last number of years John I think there's there's more of a concern now about uh, about things like transit and about uh, affordable housing and things of this nature but how do you separate yourself from the pack then to suggest uh, you know hey I, I, I'll be different uh, and try to get that done because we, we know what happens once the new council is actually sworn in. And, and they start sitting down there. There is, let's face it, and it's not unique to Hamilton, but we'll talk about this situation. Uh, a lot of people have been there for a long, long time, and they're kind of happy with the status quo and the way things are. They'll, they'll make little changes, but they don't want to do anything that's going to be monumental. No, I mean, there's a tremendous inertia that, that's built into the system. Uh, it's not simply, uh, if you will, the let's call it the old boys club, but the old counselors club. It's it's not simply them, but but there's also kind of a an unspoken pact between council and staff that that makes anybody that's too wild-eyed um, probably on the outs. And I, you know, if you look back at a the most recent example, would be Donna Skelly. Why why was she so unpopular with her her colleagues at City Hall and and to some degree with staff? And and I think what you would see there is that she challenged the status quo, uh, in you know not not really radical ways, but she you know she was asking questions like why do we have to spend a hundred thousand dollars on a on a consultant for virtually any project that comes before council, why you know why do we have to spend a hundred thousand dollars to to plan um, a parking lot expansion of twenty four spaces. But she, uh, you know, she upset that delicate balance of um, uh, that sort of exists between council and staff, and and so you you see it in in things like this being an election year. You see all the shave and paving that's going on uh, in the various wards earlier this year, uh, road improvements, and and that's you know indicative of of a kind of an unspoken pact that. Uh, 
between uh, council and staff that will kind of save up some of these projects until uh, uh, until that uh, you know until we get into an election year. It's and by the way, I'm not trying to paint everybody with the same brush because I mean there no. are some veteran counselors who do still some very good work here in the city on some very important files. We get that. But yep. but the other there just seems to be a mindset and and again I'm, I'm sure it was the same way in Toronto I, we don't know a little bit about the mashings of of what happened uh, you know in the Toronto Council and other councils in this area uh, you you know the longer you're there you you simply become part of the furniture really and and you don't want anything that's going to be radical and and there's always every now and then somebody new comes along and says well yeah but we should do this and we and they'll tolerate that to a certain extent but if they become persistent about it you're absolutely right. That counselor runs a pretty good risk of being marginalized, and good luck trying to get anything through then. That's right. I mean, there's a you know there's a system that uh, that operates, and and it even operates in the wards. I mean, I've, I've been in this election. I've been hearing stories about uh, sitting counselors who um, are outraged that a, a group of citizens would dare to form a neighborhood association without consulting with the counselor. Uh, it's anecdotal, so I'm not naming counselors, but, uh, you know, that kind of, uh, you know, ward control uh, is obviously an attempt to um, to maintain a, a status quo and a, and a control factor. So there's a lot militating against anybody that's got 100 new ideas. Uh, it'd probably be smart to boil it down to maybe one good idea that, that you might be able to implement in your in your ward. And, you know, it's kind of sad in a way that, uh, you know, that in, in many ways what we're saying, Bill, is that it's, uh, you know, that the council chamber is not a forum for ideas. Uh, it's more of a forum for uh, controlled uh, status quo uh, maintenance. Well, and, and there's a, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours attitude. And, and that seems to pervade just about every level of politics, but certainly at the municipal level. In other words, look, at this is my projector, and this is going to score me some points in my area. So you support this. And so when you have one just like that in your ward, I got your back, too. As Mackenzie King once said, they attach too much urgency to their reelection. So, it's <laughs> you know, at the end of the day... It's, it, it is a job uh, for, for a number of uh, our councillors. It is their livelihood, and they're going to tenaciously hang on to it uh, in any way possible. Having said that, <laughs> uh, there is an opportunity here for a change and maybe even a change in attitude. Uh, in all likelihood, there are going to be well, at least three new faces, I guess, and maybe more. Yep. Yeah, there there is, but you know, I, I think we looked at the last election uh, in 2014 where we got four new faces, and uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I I was not knocked out with uh, with the change that we got. Um, I, I you know there certainly was uh, no particular change in the direction of council, and uh, it, it you know so getting I think the one thing we've learned because we went through so many elections where there were no new faces. Uh, then we get an election like 2014 where we had four new faces, and I think my takeaway on that is that new faces don't necessarily mean new direction. Well, because it's awfully easy to fall into step with everybody else, isn't it? It certainly is, and and I mean the pressure is uh, just incredible to conform. So you know, it, it, and and yet you know you, we we talk like this, and I I don't want to ever 
think that we should just throw up our hands and say to hell with it. That's the way it is, and and you know there's nothing we can do. I think I think we still have to keep trying for uh, where it's necessary for incremental change. And 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 that greater change that that some of these candidates are still talking about. Uh, back to your point from earlier in the conversation, John. That's that's got to come from Queens Park. I mean, any any major change that has gone on with the way that this city is 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 governed have happened because of Queen's Park, whether it was uh, regional government back in the 70s, whether it was amalgamation, whether it was downloading, or any number of those things. Uh, those are provincial directives. They're provincial orders, really, and, and we must comply. Yeah, and, and I think it, it really, uh, it, it's quite frankly, we waste a, a lot of time, uh, as you know, certainly candidates are, are really wasting their time and their breath uh, if they're going to talk about electoral uh, reform. Uh, you're not going to get a change to uh, first past the post because, I mean, at the end of the day, if you analyze uh, proportional voting, what it means is that somebody who wouldn't win uh, under first past the post might win under proportional uh, representation. So there, there's zero incentive for anybody in an incumbency. Well, they had that, John. They had that chance. You remember, the, people yeah. tend to forget that the Wynn government actually, I think when Ted McMeekin was the municipal affairs minister, they said, look at any community that wants to use, a pro, you know, I think it was ranked balloting was the option they were given, yes. instead of this first past the post, feel free, we will bless. So, uh, nobody, crickets, nobody picked that up. Are you kidding? We're not going to do that. No. No, and, and when it was put to, uh, uh, I think it was also put to a provincial-wide uh, uh, plebiscite uh, a couple of elections ago, yeah. and, it, and it was turned down, I think, by almost a two-to-one margin. So it's not even something that uh, the majority of voters are asking for. It's it's more, you know, if you look at the political stripe of people that are constantly talking about proportional representation, um, they typically represent third parties uh, that don't win as much as they think they should. There is, a, if, you know, for anybody who's sitting there thinking, "My God, this is uh, there's never going to be any change. This is ridiculous." Uh, I, I think it is coming and now. And and you use the Toronto example where Premier Ford just slashed the size of the Toronto Council, uh, and, and suggest, suggested at the time that no, he didn't plan for doing that anywhere else yet. Not at this time, I think was the phrase that he used. But they are reviewing the Municipal Act, and and I got to think there's going to be some kind of reform that's going to come down. Uh, that's going to have an impact not just on Hamilton but other municipalities as well. Well, and and if we look at the template in Toronto, it would it would follow provincial boundaries. Uh, that that would be the likely uh, way it would work out. Now you take a community like Hamilton, where we only have five provincial or federal ridings, uh, a five-person council would be uh, just would not work. I mean, all we have to do is look at Burlington with a six-member council. And you see uh, th- that that is not working. Uh, those councillors are so overwhelmed with paper. You might as well, you know, really staff are running the shop. Uh, not that they don't run most shops, but at least there's some element of uh, advising consent. But um, I guess what you'd be looking at in a Hamilton circumstance, if they went by provincial boundaries, uh, would be electing one or two or three at large in each of the wards. Yeah. And that would be an interesting dynamic, actually. If you started, um, let's say we decided that we're going to maintain a 15-person uh, council, uh, that that would be three in each ward, and if you elected them at large, it could you you could get some some new faces. Then I think you know the 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 best known counselors would still likely get returned, but 
number two and number three, uh, it, it could end up being quite interesting. Well, and I know that's under review, and and let's face it, there's no rush. I mean, obviously, the premier had his own agenda for doing what he did with the Toronto Council, but uh, you know, this is you know going to be a four year term once this election is over next Monday. Uh, so they got lots of time to enact in uh, uh, different changes. I mean, I've heard they're toying with the idea of reducing the uh, the term now down to three years, what used to be, and they moved it up to four a few years ago. Uh, and there's rumblings at Queen's Park that they're going to drop it back down to three. Well, uh, that might not be a bad thing because we seem to be locked into a cycle now where we get a provincial and a municipal election in the same year, and that, that's likely to be the case uh, four years from now. We'd we'd have a provincial election followed closely by a municipal election. And, uh, you know, and really these elections, uh, especially at the provincial level, could have profound effects on, on municipal because look what Ford did uh, with Toronto. Uh, we could end up, say, another party, uh, the NDP or uh, the Liberals should somehow form a government again. Uh, they might undo some of his policies in the same manner that he slashed through uh, the liberal policies. Uh, you know, we, there's a there's a real swinging pendulum now. We do, we don't simply elect uh, new governments. We we seem to absolutely go from one extreme to the other uh, in terms of policies, and see it in the states. And it's a, a very volatile time for politics. So. You, you don't know uh, when you enact a policy whether who, who would have thought that uh, Ford would have um, you know done uh, taken away the uh, carbon tax and and just completely reversed uh, a lot of what had happened in the previous government, but he did, and and it can happen the other way as well. But we don't tend to see those sorts of dramatic changes at the municipal level. Is it, is it because there's always a, 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 a steady group of people that get returned to the office? I think so. I, uh, I mean, you look at the, you know, the the most volatile job uh, at the municipal level is mayor, uh, because we, you know, how many we we haven't had a two-term mayor, two consecutive term mayor, since amalgamation. Uh, but other than that, I Ni- mean, nineteen ninety-seven was the last time we reelected yeah. an incumbent. Bob Morrow got reelected in nineteen ninety-seven. That's and that correct. was the last time that any. Uh, now there've been some reasons for that. Of course, Bob Wade didn't stand for reelection, nor did Bob Bertina. Uh, right. But, you know, there have been other situations where uh, the, the incumbent has uh, not done well on election night. Yeah, and uh, and if we, you know, had the time to go through it statistically, I would say that in terms of uh, council, uh, it it's probably about a 95% return rate for incumbents running for re-election. Uh, very, I mean, you can count on one hand the number of times when a sitting incumbent was defeated. Not very often. Well, very, we'll, John, very rare. I'm sure we'll have that time next Monday night when you join us uh, down at City Hall for the election results. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. Oh, so am I. Thanks so much for this today. Okay. John Best, uh, the publisher, of course, of the Bay Observer. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The demise of another department store, Sears in the United States, uh, has uh, filed for bankruptcy protection due to massive debt and plunging sales. Is this the death knell for malls and other stores, retail outlets. Marvin Ryder from uh, the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University is with us here in studio to talk about this. How are you doing this morning? I'm glad to be here, Bill. You're not surprised by this, are you? No. In fact, if I'm surprised by anything, this has lasted this long. When Sears Canada uh, declared bankruptcy earlier this year, um, January, February of this year, I thought Sears in the United States would be right behind it in line. I'm actually surprised they got nine more months. Um, 
At the center of all of this is a fellow named Lampert who bought Sears in the United States for two, in 2004. Uh, with that, he also got control of Sears Canada, and it seemed to be all about him. For instance, in Sears Canada's case, he kept milking Sears Canada for every spare dollar it could have to either prop up the American one or to pay himself a nice handsome dividend. Uh, here we are now in 2018, 14 years after he took over, and, and in a way, he sort of starved this company into death. He, uh, Sears employees, management, were not blind to the fact that retailers uh, needed to update what they were doing to revise what they're doing to keep up with consumers, but he'd never give them the cash to do it. He always said the cash was better in his own pocket. And so today, what do we have? We have a company that has about $7.5 billion worth of assets on the books and over $11 billion in debt. Chapter 11 in the United States is a bit like our Consumer um, uh, Creditors Act, in which uh, basically you keep the creditors at bay while you try to, quote, restructure. Uh, the restructuring at this moment is going to include 140 stores closing. That leaves Sears and Kmart. They're all one today with 700 locations, 89,000 employees in the United States. And whether he can restructure his way out of this, I'm, I'm just not clear. Well, I mean, it's the usual excuse, of course. They say lagging sales, uh, which begs the question about the future of retail and the future of department stores. I mean, I want to juxtapose this, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, with a story that I also saw the weekend that uh, that says Walmart and Target stores in the States are actually doing pretty well. They've seen increases in sales. Is it because of the product? It's the same basic concept, isn't it? <laughs> you know, it is. But it, to me, it's quite fascinating uh, to watch consumers and where they spend. Now, let me first start with your initial question. Is this the end of retail stores? No. For all the talk of Amazon and, and e-commerce, and it is an important part of our, our uh, sales, but it still accounts for no more than 10% of retail sales. So 90% of retail sales still happen in stores. Now, in the United States specifically, uh, there's also no doubt about it that they have overbuilt retail space. That's why in the United States you can find entire malls sitting empty, and they mm-hmm. have to be repurposed in some way. They just overbuilt. Just again to give you a sense of it, in Canada, let's say we have 100 square feet of retail per person. In the United States, they have 250 square feet of retail space per person. It's just too much. Uh, and so inevitably, a few of these stores are going to go the way of the dodo bird if if they cannot keep relevant with consumers. And that was Sears' problems, and it's been Sears' problem for 15 years. Solid stuff, you know, you can think of the Craftsman brand, you think of the Kenmore brand. A lot of people like buying those products. But in terms of clothing items, Sears just lost touch with the consumer base, and they would prefer to go to Walmart or Target or um, uh, you know some of the other larger retailers down south of the border. And then once you lose customers, once customers forget to stop by and see your store as they head to another store, it's very hard to get them back. You can do it, but it takes some money to do that. And as I said, Mr. Lampert, he kept, he kept milking the money out of the company. Even today, Bill, it's an interesting story. You know, as an owner in the company, he owns more than 50% of the stock of Sears. He's likely going to lose that entire stake. But he also owns $2.5 billion of the debt of Sears. He is the biggest creditor of the organization. So I'm not crying for the man. He's got himself protected both ways. But he does seem to have had an interest in lining his pockets first rather than keeping the company going. And and the impact of this is going to be monumental. I mean, the the ripple effect here. Obviously, there's going to be job losses, and, and that's going to be a problem. 
But the and, and, and I'm not trying to suggest that's insignificant because it's it's not. No. But it's also you just talked about retail space, uh, and and we can relate this, for instance, to the Hamilton area. You've got large malls here that use what they call anchor stores. That's those big department stores, knowing that's going to attract people. When you lose those, what's the future there? Yeah. So let me come on that in two ways. Uh, this story today is a culmination of a story that actually broke on Wednesday that Sears was seeking legal advice and accounting advice to head into Chapter 11, and that fed into last Wednesday's meltdown of the stock market when you have a, an ancient retailer over a hundred years, as iconic in the United States as Eaton's was in Canada. When you have it fail, it does send ripples through the economy. Um, I, I actually suspect today it's not going to have a negative impact on the market because it's the conclusion to the story. Everyone saw it coming and they go, well, it's better that we get it done now. And uh, a bit like also the um, uh, demise of Target in Canada, they're doing it at a time that they're going to maximize whatever sales they can over the next couple of months. Maybe there'll be people going in at Christmas time to Sears in the United States in a sense of obligation or tradition, because that might be the last time you go there. So that's the one side of it. Now, the, the other side of it is that when you lose these anchor stores, there isn't always obvious anchor stores to move in and take over. We lost Target, I guess now it would be almost four years ago, and we have just about now reclaimed all that retail space. So all the space that Target's emptied out, we've taken over. So if you go to Burlington, for instance, one Target store is now occupied by four stores. There's not one single anchor, but there's a whole series of stores. However, Sears disappeared earlier this year, and we're struggling to absorb that space back into the marketplace our nice friends at Shoppers Drug Mart and Dollarama and Canadian Tire and Mark's Work Warehouse, they've all expanded probably more than they had planned on because they got great deals to take over those spaces so they wouldn't be sitting empty. But even then, there's a limit to how much they can grow. And in the United States, given they already have too much retail space, the Sears stores going on the market could be more of a problem. One last point on that, though, is that since it's been around for 100 years, I do wonder if its real estate might be more valuable than is listed on the books. There's an accounting rule that you should always list things at historical cost. So if I bought a store in downtown Chicago in 1910, the value I carry it on my books is the value in 1910, not the value in 2018. And it may be that as part of the restructuring, they will sell a number of locations. They'll be able to take that cash, keep it going. So Sears might survive in some form the way, say, Toys R Us Canada survived, even though Toys R Us in the United States went under. You might have somebody says, I'm prepared to buy 40 or 50 of those Sears locations, still keep the Sears name and keep them going. But as a major force in retailing, I think Sears is over. But but how do the, the, the Cadillac Fairviews and the Rio Cans and places like that, I mean, how do they absorb this? <coughs> well, initially they don't. Um, you don't obviously have people who just step in immediately. Now, you also have a long-term lease that Sears has signed. So Sears has said, we'll be there for the next 20 years. You're actually part of the creditors uh, that you're going to try to get some money back. But obviously, the day Sears closes up, that you immediately start to try to find a new tenant there and mitigate your loss. Um, and, and there will be. I, I guarantee you in the United States, people will look at Sears locations and maybe Neiman Marcus or maybe Nordstrom will say, oh, there's a nice location. They'll pick off a couple of here, pick off a couple of here. So some of them will come back into circulation fairly quickly. But we also think of Sears as a suburban store. Not only is it in a downtown urban area, but a suburban store. And there, I'm not quite as clear that there's going to be as many people wanting to move in. The Walmarts, the Targets, the Coles in the United States, they're already in those suburban areas. 
they might say, well, that one's just across the street from me. I don't need that at all. It takes time to bring that much retail space back into circulation. But it really throws off this whole formula of, of an anchor store. Yes, it then. Does. And, and And if even I'm, if I'm not an anchor store, but if I'm in that mall, right. Uh, I'm thinking, gee, if they're not coming, they're not going to come to my store, that's for sure. Right. The traffic's going to drop dramatically. Yeah. So uh, they, uh, obviously, again, those kinds of, of retail giants, the people who have the stores, um, who have the malls, excuse me, they're going to go out immediately and start making phone calls. I guarantee you the phone lines are buzzing today looking for people to take over Sears locations. Um, but it, it's, it's a challenge in the United States because they have just so overbuilt retail. And I can't really tell you why that was the case, Bill. There was, I guess, this nirvana in the United States that if you build it, they will come. So they kept building bigger and bigger suburban malls. And we've actually hit past a saturation point. Uh, I'm quite thrilled when I read stories about American malls rethinking themselves as urban hubs. You know, maybe we'll have a library. Maybe we'll have a community medical center. Maybe we'll put housing in here. And I think that's great to rethink them. We've talked about this in Hamilton in terms of Lime Ridge Mall when uh, Sears closed up there, that there was a lot of space. But a different story here. Again, we're not overbuilt. And the owner of the Lime Ridge Mall said, no, no, we've got this. Don't worry. We don't. We Thanks for those ideas. But we've got our own plans for where this mall is going to go. So I think we're in a different shape here. But in the States, yeah, expect to see some malls completely made over. What role did the big box stores play? I mean, they were the bane of everybody's existence, but we all shop at them at one time or another. Yeah, yeah it's a different, it is a different model, Bill. So where once upon a time malls gave you one shopping under one roof. So I could pull up, you mentioned visit the anchor stores, but I could visit specialty stores and do all my shopping under one roof, climate controlled, all this gorgeous, you know, I could maybe even have a spa in there if I needed partway through. Now, big box stores give you convenience in the sense that they all tend to be located in an urban area. I sometimes call it the miracle mile, that within this mile, all those stores are. But you still wind up having to drive from store to store to store. They're too big well, generally the, to walk The location to. used to be the center mall is just, just like that now. Center on Barton or, yeah. or uh, Meadowlands would be another yeah. great example yeah. of that, where you have a series of them. And I've shopped in both of those places, but you, you, know, you wind up pulling up your car in front of this place and then unfortunately getting back in your car to drive to the next place um what how they win is that they are mega stores if i think of a home depot and i need some little gadget my first inclination living in dundas might be to go to canadian tire but if i think this is so specialized i don't think that small canadian tire is going to have it gosh if anyone has it home depot so i'll make the trek to the big box store they they certainly didn't help sears um, Sears being a department store, a general merchandiser, had a little bit of everything but wasn't a specialist in any one thing. Uh, whereas Home Depot is a big box store but is dedicated in one way to a you know, very specific proposition. Uh, and they do pick off business. And that's the problem in retailing. Nothing stays static. People will pick off at the high end. People will pick off at the low end. And you've got to keep evolving to keep up. Keep up. Which is why this some of these other department stores and traditional department stores, I guess, are getting into specialization. And, and we talked about that a couple of years ago, of course, with uh, the Bay. I think it's called the Bay again. I get, they yes. keep changing the name every yeah. few years. Uh, but they dumped a, you know, they used to be everything to everybody. There was a, you know, a, an appliance department, a furniture department, et cetera. That's all. Well, they've got, they've hived it off. And, and all you buy inside that store now is clothing. Right. Now, having said that, part. now, having said that, here's a great example of a store that is experimenting. The Bay, uh, for this Christmas season, has partnered with FAO Schwartz. This is the big New York uh, 
toy retailer, and they're going to have what they call pop-up stores. So for the Christmas season only, the Bays will suddenly have toys again, but with the FAO Schwartz sort of labeling on it. And that's what the Bay has tried to do, create a series of specialized stores within their big uh, uh, store, so that if you're going clothing shopping while I'm going to the Ralph Lauren outlet or I'm going to the Tommy Hilfiger outlet within the Bay, now it's the FAO Schwartz. And this is their response to Toys R Us problems. Well, maybe there's a chance for us. Now, Walmart's also going to go after that market space. Uh, I think if you're a shopper this Christmas season, look for a lot of bargains on toys because everyone wants your money. Toys R Us Canada still exists. They're going to want you to come back and shop. So there's going to be a lot of people incenting you. But I think the Bay, this is a very interesting experiment. It's not a permanent thing they're doing. It's just for the Christmas season. And that's the kind of innovation you need today if you're a department store. It's the kind of innovation that Sears just refused to do. Or just be known as, as a destination place. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of the success and of a place like Winners, which is actually a multi-faceted company. That's Winners, that's Marshalls, uh, HomeSense. I think they're yep. all part of the same family, aren't they? Yeah, they are. And and yet, again, they, they're able to position each of those stores just a little differently in the mind of the consumer. And that's that's another great example. Of it. Even if you think of uh, Loblaws, we have Loblaws stores, but we have no frill stores. We have Fortinos. They're all owned by the same company, but they position each of the stores differently in the minds of the consumer. I, I find it absolutely fascinating. You know, I'll, I'll have people tell me, well, I get so much better deals. I really love that no frills. I get so many better deals there than I get at Loblaws. And I think, but it's the same company. Uh, and in fact, no one ever raises the question, why is it possible for you to sell item A, whatever it is, so cheaply at no frills and not so cheaply at Loblaws? And yet nobody ever complains about that. And that's the whole idea of my satisfaction. I'm getting good enough prices there and I'm getting these other benefits that I don't really care that I'm getting the absolutely lowest price. That's, I'll think, I thought it was all because you have to put that quarter in the, uh, the shopping cart or you, get, or you don't get one. <laughs> save a nickel, save a dime, whatever you can. Wherever you can. Yeah. Always a pleasure, Marvin. Thanks so much. Glad to be here, Bill. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML.